0: All right. Happy what day? Tuesday. I did actually look at the calendar (laughs) to figure this out. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Every day is Blur's Day. We are back with another episode of Learning Tech Talks. And first of all, I want to give a big shout out to Intrepid today. They are the ones responsible for making this episode happen. If you're not familiar with them, definitely check them out. But I am joined by Matt Donovan, who is not from Intrepid. He's from GP Strategies. And we all worked together and said, you know, what would be a really important topic to talk about is this big concept called the learning ecosystem that is all over the place. I feel like it's in almost every conversation I hear, but we're going to demystify that thing and dig into it. So I'm looking forward to the conversation we're about to have. This is going to be a fun one, I think. They all are, but this one's gonna be especially <laughs> fun. But before we get started, like we always do, as people start trickling in, let's let's warm people up. Let's let's get things going here. So if you can, if you're watching right now, comment in and tell me where you are in the world today. And we're gonna do the same, starting with you, Matt.
1: So I am coming to you from Bloomington, Indiana, so just about an hour south of Indianapolis, so nestled in between Chicago, St. Louis, and Columbus, Ohio, so right here at the yes. home of Indiana University.
0: There you go, Dab Square in the middle of the U.S. You're like right in... The Crossroads same- of America, yes. Yes. And not too far from me, because I'm up in Waukesha, Wisconsin, up near Milwaukee. Not too far. It's not close. Not like I could fly my drone to your house or anything like that. But close enough that it would be less than a day's journey. We'll we'll just leave it at
1: that. I have driven to Summerfest. I love it. So I, I, I love Summerfest. It's one of the best things ever. So.
0: All right. All right. So now before we get into the conversation, this is, a, this is a nice little sidebar from the usual icebreaker. This one is completely off topic <laughs> for today. And I was very enthusiastic with Matt's enthusiasm when I told him what the question was. So I'm really looking forward to hear this. And everybody who's watching, I actually would love to hear your answers to this as well. Let's, let's get some strategy going around this. This has nothing to do with learning ecosystem, but it may come in handy at some point. So for you, Matt, you kick things off But I want to hear what would be your strategy for surviving a zombie apocalypse?
1: No, I I love this. I love this cuz this is something that I've actually been thinking about. And I'm an old old school zombie fan, so I get, you know, The, the Walking Dead and all that here recently, but I have been thinking about zombie strategies. You we're thinking for a about long zombies
0: time. before the walk Back of the day is a
1: big thing. I am literally one go bag uh, away from being ready to go. I mean, we we're, we're set. So, you know, you know, first of all, I am a recovering instructional designer at heart, so you know, the first thing we've got to do is find our location and our structure. We we got to figure out where we're going to hold up to survive. Okay. The zombie tech so let's let's assume it's more of a short-term thing and not forever that's where i'm more focused on right now all right the first thing is you got to get a structure something you can board up something you can you know you know a couple of entries now that so you got to find a good structure then you got to select the people you're going to be with now this is important every day i meet somebody i'm thinking in the back of my head is this, this is somebody i want to be thinking in the I'm back about this when he
0: meets you he's like would i want to know nope. Exactly.
1: It's a personal network. It's like, okay, who would I put on in charge of like in our zombie team? Who's going to be watching the back door? Who's going to be sharpening sticks? Who's going to be covering, you know, things like that. And and then how do you manage the one person that comes up with the great ideas? Like, let's set them on fire. And and I'm like, that's a bad idea. sounds like a good idea. Now you got a zombie on fire rolling around. These are things you got to think about first. (laughs) No narcolepsy. First rule, no narcolepsy. Almost every time you put the narcolep on the back door, they fall asleep, doors open, zombies get in. So you got to make sure you have an alert crew. Having a barista would not probably be a bad thing. Keep us caffeinated throughout it. So I've started to think about... Who you assemble for your team? Where you're going to be, and then you got to start to look at everyday implements that you can quickly turn into uh, actual weapons. So, practical weapon stuff. creation, a- absolutely. Practical you know, it's a, every. Stuff. I look at everything around my house as a way to probably kill a zombie if I had to. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, mean, I, lo- I love your question.
0: meeting so. you have with someone where you're where you're scoping them out for would you be someone in my post apocalyptic network? You're also looking at everything in your house, deciding. Could I use this as a weapon?
1: Wherever where we're at, we're out at a diner for dinner. I'm looking around just in case it happens. Just Where's my case. exit?
0: Head on a swivel. with Head me? That's
1: right. Always. You never know when it's going to hit. You got to be ready. <laughs> These are the kind of things that I'm thinking, you know, kind of thinking through. And yeah, I mean, it's not a bad way to look at, you know, somebody and say, look, I would be willing to be trapped in a house with you during a zombie attack. That's actually a pretty high compliment. It's getting what? down to it. There's a lot of trust.
0: That's, that's, that's a fair point. You know what? Your, your answer to that was far more detailed, although not surprising, not surprising, but more detailed than I expected. So the question, what's funny about this, the question was actually inspired. My wife and I have been watching. And, and again, I've kind of always been interested in zombie movies. They're fun, but we got really big into Walking Dead, even through the bad seasons. right? There were a couple bad seasons. You're like, I don't know if I can keep going. Then it came back and we just are catching up on season 10. So this is it. Now my my response to this one is I've got five kids 10 and under. We're not going anywhere, right? Like the whole idea like we can't go anywhere without a zombie apocalypse, it just doesn't happen. We would be we would be that injured, you know, deer in the back of the herd. We would just be a sitting duck. So for us it would be how are we going to bunker down? Now we are pretty strategically placed. We're on top of a hill. We've got good vantage points. So I think we could probably seal off and and probably be okay here for for a while. I'd probably need to fortify the compound a bit, but that's probably our strategy see how long we can hold out. You're
1: not near a cemetery, are you? Because that's the other thing when buying property, don't run into a house next to You know what? My
0: parents were funeral directors. I learned that at a very young age. That is not (laughs) where we would be buying property. See, I did debate this. I was like, would I go out into the middle of nowhere where potentially, right, you you might be able to kind of set up your own thing, but – then coming back, like, what if you need something? Do you really want to traverse hundreds of miles to find? I don't know. But you also don't want to be in downtown. I don't know. Lots to think about. Lots of important details to think about. <laughs> Hopefully everybody now is better prepared for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> yes. Based on this. And that's a perfect transition for prepping, because we're also talking about prepping for your digital learning ecosystem, which is as critical, if not more critical, in our success in organizations today. So, with that, let's let me first, before we get even into that, why don't you tell me and everybody else just a little bit of your background? You said you're a recovering instructional designer, so lay that out for me. What, what where, where did it, What's give me your elevator speech? If something sure,
1: well, uh, absolutely. So, so um a classically trained instructional designer uh, from Indiana University here. So I, I came out and I said, this is what I want to do. I was actually looking at uh, K through 12, but I decided adult is really where I wanted to go. So, I uh, got my graduate master's program there. I got into um, working with a, a local employer around here, doing some work with them, loved what I was doing. Then I had the opportunity to pick up with a, a dot-com uh, in, in the late 90s called unix.com, which um, was a fantastic opportunity to really think about if you look at that around the usability or the evolution of platforms at that time, which is very similar to what we're seeing now, the ability to think about how could you create as rich an, an online MBA program next to being able to go to, to there. So this was you know $250 million uh, venture capital to figure out that solution partnering with Stanford, Carnegie Mellon, um, Columbia, and all of those folks. So anyway, really crafted that new forward thinking of how do we use platforms and technology, but really coming from a usability and a user side. So as I've kind of gone with that classically trained instructional designer to really go from content-centric to almost a learner-centric, wrapping around the content, that's kind Something of where...
0: beyond I, just the development of the content itself.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so the really covering instructional designer is that we're kind of overcoming as that... the recovering part. That's the recovering part. Yeah. There's a lot of power when you think about designing a course. We start off with those learning objectives. It says, at the end of this course, you will know. But in today's world, we're inviting them in, the learners owning the journey. And I, as a, as a control enthusiast, as a, as a classical designer, I'm crafting this well thing that you will experience. I'm, uh, I'm creating this for you and you will experience it as I've designed it. You're now opening up the design to allow them into it, to be able to craft and do that. That's that other, that other, you know, how do you open up that control side? So anyway, it's definitely
0: a shift and I think it's one that, you know, as an industry we've, We've I don't know that we well, no, I don't know. I do know we're not there yet. We're not there yet in terms of arriving, and I think we still have a long ways to go, but I've definitely seen some big strides in, like you said, kind of opening that up and saying, We we are not the bottleneck, we are not the gatekeepers of all these things. And how, to your point, do we invite in Learn is into that. Okay. So you you go you go way back then for it. I don't I don't often bump into folks that have that because I see I started, I was gonna be a math teacher. So I, I went the K-12 route and bounced out, but still kind of in that sense. All right, so then let's let's shift gears. <laughs> Toby, Toby <laughs> recommends we remove all learning objectives. So I've <laughs> I've seen... <laughs> nothing excites people more than when they get into something and the first thing they see is by the end of this. Bloom's taxonomy. I mean, I know me. Love it. That just, <laughs> that just gets me out of my chair. I will be able to describe, recite, and explain. Love it. It, uh, it just warms
1: your heart. It just—it's like—it's like a—it's—it's like, it's, it's like a grandmother's hug. That's the way I've gotten did. all my learning. If I, if I didn't have night. objectives,
0: this can't How be do learning, I know right? What I'm gonna do? How do I know what I'm gonna do? <laughs> anyway, okay. So let's let's. <laughs> We're going to get destroyed. We're going to get dist- <laughs> We're going to get banned. I know. Yeah. And at this
1: rate, we're going to get our our designer cards revoked. Yeah, I
0: know. We're going to get we're going to get in big trouble here. So, what gears <laughs> to this whole the ecosystem piece because this is a big this is a big thing that I think a lot of people in our industry now are thinking about. They're talking about it. They're saying, "Hey, we need to build an ecosystem. We need to improve our ecosystem. We need to do- architect an ecosystem." And Personally, in the conversations I've had with folks, depending on who you're talking to, that means a lot, a lot of different things. I think there are some general trends that you'll see, but, but there's a lot of variety in that. So if when somebody says to you, or when I said, hey, let's talk about the learning ecosystem, how, how do you articulate that? What is your definition?
1: Well and I and I think you have a really good point. There's a lot of ways in which I think people try to talk about it, but we're also running into the problem that the word ecosystem is used so much it's actually lost meaning. It's almost becoming ubiquitous. It's it's everything and it's nothing at everything the same time. Everything and nothing.
0: All of yeah.
1: Us. And I think it's we have certain terms like LXP, learning experience platform that it means so much that it means nothing at all. And we're running to kind of in that. So I know personally what I found that works well and in, in ways that I want I've talked about it, I look at it from from an organizational intent of saying that if we were going to put something out there for the benefit of learners, workers, performers, what is our organizational intent that we would want to bring into that? How would we think about um, doing this? So we know, for example, and I, and I have a little map that I kind of use to talk about it. But you know, the first layer is is that we want to create a place where the learners always go when they need to learn something. So whatever the moment of need is, whatever the driver is, I got to start off and think about that. So you think of the utilitarian. Need for it. It says a centralized place people come when they need to learn something. So where do I go? Where do I find it? That's the first step, and that's generally your front door, and that's either been historically like an LMS or um, you know a curated platform uh, that would be out there, or sometimes people are creating dynamic HTML5 portals that they're overlaying all these other things. But that's just one functional layer. Then you, then I have kind of what you talk about is the device, the ways in which they interact with them. So you think about my own device, a company supplied device, a laptop, um, a virtual headset, watches, whatever. Knowing that we're going to interact and either contribute, consume, go in the flow with, you're gonna do that in a variety of ways. So think about a layer there. And then I kind of go through and think about these different layers like that. Probably the, one of the most critical layers that we look at is how are you going to actually collect data to know that it's either working or how to improve. So it's either prove that what you've implemented is working or improve it as you're actually going through and it's functioning. So the measurement analytics layer is absolutely an underpinning that we have to have in place. And it blends, you know, looking not just at traditional learning metrics like, you know, uh, the, the traditional Kirkpatrick or, um, uh, You know the model of the one through four or one through five if you're a Philips follower, Um, really it's going extending into the business and even into the affordance of some of the tools. Like for example, you get into adaptive learning data points you're gonna bring in or you're gonna bring in um, experience, consumption, relevance if you can try and track that. So how do you actually have an overall map that shows from a business impact all the way back to your implementation? How will you have the right data at the right points to answer your critical business needs around as a learning intervention, do we meet that? So, so anyway, kind of, that's where I kind of get into kind of mapping out the structures um, and then there's other dimensions where you think about the learning organization itself. How will it actually manage the assets? Where will you build it? Where are you will you deploy it? So I I need um, bandwidth friendly. So am I going to have a media server that's going to be able to deliver out more higher bandwidth items? You know, what, what does that delivery side look like? How are you going to manage the assets like a digital asset manager um, yeah. where you're doing the own policy? So it was kind of a longer answer to it, but that's kind of what no, sets up that picture. No.
0: And just so you know, the way the way I tend to have these conversation flows, you can interrupt me. I'll probably interrupt you, cause hey, that's how that's how we're gonna do it. But I think some of the things you hit on that where, where I see people go south a little bit once in a while is they're they're focused on the platform, right? The, the the platform or the category that they're seeing in the market, you know, the LXP or the LMS or the micro learning platform, and thinking about it in that standpoint versus backing up behind that and some of the things you hit on that I think are really important to focus on is one, what are the actual capabilities that you're needing to do? Like what do you as a function need to accomplish? Not what platform are you going to use to do it, but really actually peeling that back and saying, what are we actually trying to do here? Which to your biggest point is well, part of the reason you're taking this digital is to have greater insight and visibility into that. So what is the data you're going to get out of that? So asking some of those fundamental questions is actually a, a better starting place to say, well, OK, yeah. rather than just going, what What do we not have? And, and I kind of popped it into the screen for a second. But like this is this is something I've done in the past. Uh-huh. where It's been about hey, what do we as an operation need to be able to do? These are the different things. And I think the other thing, sometimes we're so focused on the end user side of it. LD is a pretty complicated operation. Yep. There is yep. some capability that we need within there. So really kind of dialing that back and saying, what are all the different things we need to do so that then we can figure out what technology do we have? What do we not have? What data do we not have visibility in? Now we can actually start saying, okay, let's design a architecture of systems around yeah. that.
1: I, I think it's a great point. And, and, and it's funny because they do have, um, you know, and, and let's say it's more complex than it's ever been. So it's not that all of a sudden we, we're not grasping this. The I kind of refer to as the appification of the industry has risen to the point that um, it's overwhelming. I mean, you know, through our innovation kitchen at GP Strategies, we're we're currently monitoring 36 categories of platforms. And over those 36 categories, over 155 platforms. And they're constantly in a state of flux as they move from. So what it it goes to show is how many and what they're out there. But unfortunately, to your point, asking what you're trying to get out of it is probably the most important thing. Because sometimes we start off with, I think I need this. And and I use the, you know,
0: a lot of times. A lot of times it starts off with that. I think we need this.
1: Well, it'd be like, and I use the example of like dinner. So let's say I was going to invite you over this beautiful dinner. We're going to run seven course meal. And I said, but here's the problem. I need to know what four, you know, utensils or set place setting items you want. Well, they want a plate, a glass, I don't know, a fork, maybe. Great. And then you come to the house and you find out I'm serving lobster, crab legs, and oysters. And all of a sudden it's like, well, these don't work for that. Well, the idea is saying, let's start off with what are you trying to achieve first? What's your outcomes? And then we work back to find the right tools or technologies that that match that. And then that's the biggest thing is you want to start off with the outcomes and the experience you're trying to drive, then make your technology solutions. I know that sounds Simple, but it surprising.
0: Sounds simple. It sounds yeah. simple, but but to your point, and I think there's two things you hit on that are really important with that, that sometimes we we tend to be pretty hard on ourselves and for sometimes for good reason. but in other parts, your point is true that the complexity of, of this has exponentially grown. It has exponentially grown. And this is not necessarily territory. everybody has always been super comfortable with. So now we're being asked to architect this complicated technical infrastructure, and, you know, for, for a long time, maybe the complexity of technology we had to deal with was an LMS, you know, well, which LMS do we need? And now it's, well, and what else might you need to supplement that? But to your point about the, about the utensils piece and where, where you'll see this play out is when you don't do that problem outcome mm-hmm. approach first, that's when you end up with a glass and a spoon and things like that. And you go, well... Now we need to force this to open a lobster and then you're sitting there trying to open a lobster with a spoon and then complaining that the spoon doesn't work and saying this spoon is a piece of trash. It doesn't work. I hate the spoon. The spoon is the most useless utensil in the kitchen. And you go, well, no, it's not. Actually, you're trying to use a spoon to shell a lobster and it's not ever what it was really intended to do.
1: I mean, that, that is that is essentially. And and folks often ask me, I said, you know, well, can we do it with this platform? I said, it's like a lot of things, you know, you can make anything fly if you throw it hard enough. And honestly, yes, I can open a lobster <laughs> with a spoon. I probably have done it and, and looked like a fool while doing it. But yes, is it efficient? Is it what it was intended for? No. But that's the question is, what's the affordance you're trying to get back to? Are there better decisions you can make over time? I mean, but, but it is even, you know, that, that's a great example to start people thinking about that. But, but let's even get into, you know, I had a great question. Somebody was asking me, so we're thinking about a video-based coaching platform. So, so okay. basically, I, as a user, upload a video. And I want other people to come in and weigh on it. You know, I want to demonstrate some a task or a skill, like a pitch or something like that. I put it out there, um, and they're asking me which one is the best platform to use. That's what we want. And I'm like, well, what are you trying to actually evaluate or do? And so, you know, I know that in, in our looking, there there are probably four really good platforms. And there's probably more than that before I'm really seeing it apply, but they all tackle the problem very differently. Yeah. And so if you were using it to said, I really want robust to be able to do a lot of rotations and be able to send it out to, you know, 55 people and get, you know, for each of the uploads, everybody gets five or six. There's a really great robust peer based review engine. That's probably the strength of one. I have another one that's driven out of the timeline. So if I'm trying to highlight, like when you did this, like a vehicle walk around or you showed this on a product, I could stop there, highlight on screen and be able to show that again, it gets back to what are you trying to do to achieve for it? And it's not that both can't do it, but if you really, you're trying to achieve this, I would recommend this one. If you were trying to do that, I might
0: go over here. So, and I think that, that piece of going beneath, you know, those, the capabilities or the use cases we're not just talking about surface level video feedback. We want video yeah. feedback. Well, okay, but there's nuance in that and there's nuance between that and saying, well, how, what does that look like? Going back to the learner-centric side of everything is what does that need to look like? Or ideally, what would you like that to look like on their end? Because based on those capabilities, which are bigger than just, we want a video feedback type platform, you're actually going into, well, we really, this is where the workers are or this is a typical workflow type thing. Okay. Well, based on that, that's going to be a different pathway. And I think that helps with some of the things because one of the other questions I get a fair amount is, okay, well, but do we need a separate platform because maybe this platform already does this. And I feel like as the platforms are getting more mature, they are baking in some more basic level functionality for some of these things. And that's where, this can get you in big trouble with IT or into a battle with them. If you haven't gone to that deeper level of what capability and requirements do you really need? On an RFP, the answer is gonna be yes across the board. You're gonna say, well, our LMS already does that. And it's gonna be very hard to defend. Well, actually we need more than what our LMS can do because we have these specific use cases or this capability that requires a, a specialized tool that can do it like this.
1: And that, and when it gets to engagement and adoption, and again, going back to that user-centric, that human-centric viewpoint, in the end, we we, we need to really treat learning as an experience. And, and a dimension of that is them as a u- user of it. And so you have to get to the other end and think about Because if it says, that's fine, we're going to throw it out there. And you're surprised when they don't use it, or it doesn't work well, and you don't even get in engagement and adoption... You may have gone with something you currently have, but did you really achieve your outcomes? Whereas maybe you look at your profile and said, okay, look for, you know, because a lot of these are now cloud-based platforms, they have a range of, of structures that you can be able to work with them. You, one size fits all probably doesn't exist anymore. It just no. does it to meet all your needs. So the question is, and then I do know partners that actually maintain a couple of these tools because every organization has different users. I have sales, I have in the commercialization side, I have manufacturing, I have R&D, I have corporate and, and general administrative. So I have different user groups that may do things and they actually may need but that's where you get into thinking about what are you what are you trying to achieve? Can we do it with the same tool? Do we need to look at slightly different that's going to give you better lift? Because in the end, if you're going to make $1 of investment, you better get everything you can out of that dollar. Yeah. Making a dollar investment that you get no utilization of is a wasted dollar.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and I think that's where there is this natural tendency. And I get it. There's this natural tendency to say, well, can't we just make it easy? Can't we just have the one that, that does it all? And- Yeah. In an ideal world, that'd be be great. But honestly, I actually don't think you would want that anyway. Because if you really think about it, if you told me, hey, do you want a phone that only has one app on it? No. No, (laughs) No, I do not. Because I don't want to have to use one app and try and figure out how to do everything with it. I actually want different things for the different things I'm trying to accomplish. And I think that's where, in theory, the concept of, well, wouldn't it be great if we just had one thing to do it all? Sounds good. But I would say, in, in the end, it wouldn't. Now, the question, a question that came up from Toby, and this is, a, this is a good one, is so Toby had asked, you know, and, and I've been on both sides of this. Not everybody has the privilege of starting from scratch. So you may be in an organization where you go, <laughs> yeah, this is great. And I would love to just go out and buy best in breed of all these different yeah. capabilities and work through that and, and build out my ideal ecosystem. Been on the other side where you're handed a a crap sandwich and you're like, well, you know, we got to make this work. And I think for me, and I'm curious your take on this. One of the things I've found over the years is that a lot of times there's a perception that we need another platform and we haven't really tested and maximized the capability that we have. There's this idea that, well, if we go get this one or this one, it'll be better. And we haven't really done our, we haven't cleaned house internally. And so then all that ends up happening. You have this really nice, brand new, shiny Ferrari. You haven't even figured out how to drive a stick yet. So I think for me, my experience has been, well, let's figure out and actually maximize what we have because that then further helps you articulate where the capability gaps exist. And you can actually have a quantitative discussion saying, hey, we're doing this. This is what we can get. We're we're, we're maximizing this. If we could go this way, here's what we could get in return. Yeah. And that then opens the dialogue to say, oh, you know what, going back to your point of if we're going to invest a dollar, let's make sure it counts. You can actually tell that story pretty well in that case.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing is there's two dimensions in this. And one. one is, this is why I always advocate starting off with a, a map of the ecosystem. And so that's why kind of the the structure of the org centric utility standpoint, like let's just map our current state and you start to look at it over time where you want to go or what you want to be able to add. By no means of all the boxes that we have in there, no organization has everything. But the question is, as you start to put in a three-year projection of where do you want to go, what kind of features do you feel you want to have? Now, that's one dimension is having a map and a plan. And there's no harm in actually coming up with, this is where we would like to go. That's visioning. That starts the cornerstone of a strategy of where you want to go. And that's a great place to begin the conversation. Now, the second thing is putting in a a good innovation engine into the organization. What I'm really trying to get to is a proactive, evidence-based approach to learn about the platforms or that you want to explore that you may want to use so that when you go to talk about adding this in, you've actually got data, high likelihood it may succeed, things like that to be able to come in. Here, we actually know how it's functioned. We've tried this and we've tried this. We think this makes a lot more sense. But I think one of the more challenging things I've seen is when when, when you have like these... Mission criti- critical business initiatives out there. So <laughs> we're going to change our performance management architecture. We're going to out, roll out a new software to be able to help that. So we're going to decouple salary from, you know, improving. So we want more, more robust performance conversations. We'll separate out salary and progressions, and we got to have a software to support that. And because we got all this, and it's it's very important, it's got everybody's eye look on it. Let's try new
0: technology. Yeah, let's throw let's throw right a now. new platform into the mix. Two, still don't know how this is all going to work, but let's also layer on the complexity of a whole new system. We have no
1: idea. I mean, that is the worst point. And this is the thing, innovation and execution, the way we think about execution are often at odds with each other. Execution is consistent, systematic, repeatable success. Innovation is messy, risk-laden. You want to fail, but you want to fail forward, but it, it has a process with it. But Innovating at the point of desired execution is a bad mix. So imagine if you were to go back six months, you had a separated space in the innovation where you are able to set up that test so that when this big initiative came out, guess what? I think we could actually, we have a high likelihood it's going to succeed. This is a perfect application for that and now we can get some traction you now have a tested asset versus like i have no idea what's happening i can't get in i can't get my modules on my phone i can't do this
0: i can't do no. that it
1: didn't really work
0: and now the whole now the whole thing falling apart looks like it's your the fault tech, yeah. right and, yeah. and, the, and it falls back and i think a good example of this from my back you know my history was back when daps digital adoption platforms were first kind of making making their way onto the stage this was one of those things that, I, and I called it, I've always called it my incubator. That's what it was. It was like the incubate. You don't, you don't do this in the midst of a mission critical thing. You do this as an ongoing piece that you're exploring, testing capabilities, testing this stuff out. And it was a similar experience where we'd been playing around with DAPs for a bit, knew what the you know implications of implementing one were. We knew what the resource requirements were, what kind of workload it was going to take. And then there was a big mission critical business initiative. But by the time we said, hey, I think we can approach this differently and here's what it was, we'd worked through a good chunk of what needed to be done. So by the time we actually rolled it out, we weren't scrambling and it actually made it a wild success versus a nightmare.
1: Yeah. And I think that's that's key. And, and underpinning all of this to, to level set any of your strategic persuasive conversations, the more evidence you have to support it. The better off you're going to be. And that's where I think, you know, even if, you know, one of the things we did at GP was we really started to do what we called the innovation kitchen. So, what that was when our partners wanted to try something out, we actually had it on the GP side. So, we had low risk, low barrier test and learn strategies. So we didn't have to penetrate a highly secure environment just to figure out how does this platform work? Because most of these things, adaptive learning, you, you take it like an intrepid platform, they are different experience profiles. They they If you've not been in one, you won't know what it's like till you've actually done it. It's a lot like grabbing a cat by the tail. It's hard to describe it. You just need to do it once and figure out there's not something you want to do again. That's the idea is when you get into a safe environment to be able to do that. So you can gather data. It's you're gonna ask some questions, the good old-fashioned seventh grade, you know, scientific process. You know, have I a hypothesis, ask some questions. You're gonna learn some stuff and you're gonna try some more. Do it quick start more progressively. And then as you build confidence, as it goes from the art of the possible to, as I call the business of the Bible, you're moving into pilots and bigger pieces and it's ready to go. You're gathering evidence. Then you can really look at like price profiles, utilization. Here's where we can get some consolidation off things. All that starts to play in and it makes it just a lot easier for that integration conversation.
0: And I think what you're talking about is especially critical for people in our field right now because like we said earlier this is this is newer territory for a lot of folks the the whole technical side of of system architecture it integration all this stuff is is not this is not developing e-learning courses or or building a leadership development program this can get pretty technical pretty quick and i think to your point you don't want to be having those conversations with it as you're in the process of this and they're asking you about you know, well, what kind of integration requirements are you going to have? Or how is the data managed and stored on servers? Or as we're dealing with GDPR, where do you actually house this data? And what is your process for? You don't want to be having those conversations when you've got a deadline six weeks out and you're trying to get through this thing and works councils now are breathing down your neck going, yeah, you can't do this. And now that's becoming an issue. And I think that's to your point why it's so important to be exploring this stuff and doing some small-scale pilots with some of these different tools to say, hey, how does this work? What's the experience? Where are we going to get some additional horsepower out of it?
1: Well, and you also get a nice insights into the cultural change your organization is going to have to do. That, that, the, the biggest part with most of these platforms where learning becomes an experience, is a cultural shift. So one, one of the big tenets of modern learning is out there is the, I call it the first rule of modern learning, is that the learner must take accountability for the journey. They, ha- they have a role and this is a design shift for us. We start to create negative space in the design where, where the learners step in. They have to be that critical component for relevance to actually be achieved. The learners themselves complete that equation. I cannot design relevance for you. I can create the conditions for it. I can be highly likelihood knowing that it may be relevant to you, but as a consumer in the end, you're the one that makes that relevance and you have a part and a role within this. And, and when we get into that, for any organization, when you take more of that ownership and you haven't been, you've just been a consumer, but now I'm a collaborator, contributor, a moderator, You know, pick the other ores that fit in there. How will you actually, as an organization, shift and adopt and take part of that? If you do your testing early, you will get insights into what the change management effort is going to need to be because you have to plan. You cannot just, um, you know, and and we've seen this, you know, some very well-intentioned. It's a rollout of a a very powerful system. You know, some some partners have looked at like, hey, we're going to pull out a curation platform. Very powerful platform, but it changes the dynamics. A very pull-based piece versus push. When you do that, that's a big shift for the organization. And you really have to think about how you're going to actually drive that adoption, engagement, buy-in, and their role in learning. And um, the more more you can get into that before you have to go live with it, the better prepared you will be when you actually need to launch it.
0: And on top of that is the fact that this type of stuff, I think back to a conversation I had a couple weeks ago where with major scale digital transformation sometimes the tendency is to say we have we, got this one shot we've got this one chance and let's let's bet all our chips we're all in on this this is going to be it and then we wonder why it goes down you know in a ball of flames because we, you can't you can't play this like the poker table that's not the best way to play this the best way to play this is make strategic conservative bets on small scale things and experiment to your point of Getting data, figuring out what are those implications on the change management side of things, all these other pieces so that instead of because I've seen this happen more times than once is a new platform comes in and people have expectations of what it's going to do. You've bet all your chips on this. And because you weren't ready for it, it actually works against some of the major changes you're trying to drive because people look at it and go, well, see, that doesn't work. And it's like, oh, It does work, but it was the execution and implementation of that that actually led to that conclusion.
1: Absolutely. And I think that that's, I mean, that's the critical thing when you're thinking about these. It's not just like, you know, using a technology to drive change is probably not your best leverage point. It often comes with it. It's part of the process, but it shouldn't be just, we'll do it and they will adjust. Yeah, that's a pretty bumpy approach to be able to do it. So, and I, whenever at all possible, what we're trying to say is get ahead of the game, change the rules. We don't have to sit and wait for something to be launched. You can be proactive and you can be chewing these things up in advance so that when you get the call and it's ready, you can make the most of it. And then you probably don't even have to go in and do big bang because you probably got strategic insights. You've been setting the groundwork. You're going to be a little bit better off. I mean, There are reasons why, in some conditions, why you may have to go big bang. I personally, from a change management strategy for a lot of these things, I do not recommend big bang. It's a hard thing to change every element of the organization and no one size fits all change strategy works for all the different functions within a business. They run at different business rhythms. So it's almost taking a customer centric, like a customer centricity model. And thinking about your internal customers of of consuming a learner experience and how do you adjust your your approach so it meets the needs of what you know about that business function, that business unit, how it's going to respond and react. They're very different engines. You have salespeople will be very different than your engineers, will be different than your manufacturing SMEs. They're all going to be different populations that run at different speeds. And so how do we best get the most out of them in the new tool?
0: Now, the one thing I'm going to, and again, we'll see, maybe maybe we'll argue, maybe we're saying the same thing and we'll go back and forth. It's always fun when there's a little bit of discourse. <laughs> in this one. So the one where I would say that I've seen some variant in this <laughs> is when you look at, and, and Toby asked about this, with some of these large-scale enterprise implementations, right. this is where I've seen the small kind of incubator approach not always work the best, right? And what I mean by that yeah. is, The incubator approach can work well for a capability testing where you say, hey, we maybe want to test to see how this would work or what we need to know or how we might want to integrate in with our system so we can get a feel for it. But when it comes to actually rolling this out to people, we don't necessarily want to gate or stage this thing because we actually don't want – and where I've seen this actually go really south is I had a – I won't mention where, but I had a wildly successful pilot – that the business wanted to just take function by function by function by function. And we actually destroyed the momentum that we had because word got out. It was really successful. Word got out, everybody wanted it. And we kept having to tell people, no, well, you can't have it. Oh no, it's not ready. We're not. You're not on the pilot list. And actually the whole initiative just went south. Now, going back a second time, the way we approached it was we said, let's unlock the capability for the enterprise but we will be strategic in our rollout and kind of personalization yep. plan. So we're not going to do the, Hey, we're telling everybody all at once. We're going to personalize that, but we don't want the capability to be unlocked. And that's a different conversation with the business. <laughs>
1: Absolutely. <industry>. yeah. <laughs> I, I think you gave a really go good forward. point. No, I would agree with you. And I think in the context of saying, you know, are we going to go zero to 100,000 employees within 12 weeks? And I'm like, that's 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 a, bit much. <laughs> that's
0: a recipe for disaster.
1: That is going to be, you know, but, but to your point, having it available and then having your strategic, that's what I think you really had a fine point on that. So, yes, there are thresholds where you do need to get those adoption levels and things working out. And you also do strategically think about how you're gonna who you're gonna target in your rollouts. You wanna build some momentums, you want to get some good wins, you wanna build confidence in the system, you wanna be able to do those things. Those are all absolutely critical. But I've also seen folks try and turn it on for everybody and then not have the right content to use in it. Because when you think about something that goes from learner and relevance driven. It's not just that I could turn it on and go into it. It's did I get what
0: I needed out of it? Was there something necessary? of value to me that brings exactly? And that that is an important point because yeah. you can lose your audience real quick if they go there and go, oh, this is this new thing, yeah. useless. And then they move on and it's very hard to get people to come back. So it is, and I think this is some of the complexity that we're talking about with this, that it's not, there's not a nice one size fits all. Here's how to roll out a new t- capability because even, I just even think the example we just talked through, some of those nuances depend on what are you trying, what, what kind of capability or audience yes. or problem are you trying to solve with this? Yes. I think some of the smaller scale ones are yes. great ones like, and again, we're, we're mentioning them because they, they're part of it, but not just for this reason, but you think of like an Intrepid where you might say, hey, you know what, this is a different way of deploying a learning experience. Let's not necessarily make everything that, but let's figure out what this kind of capability, this is a different experience for learners to have. Let's figure out what we might be able to do with the program and see what that response is so that we can then maybe potentially scale it up. That's a different story than saying, well, we've got an enterprise LXP or something like that where we're going, well, we need everybody to have this kind of stuff. Let's, let's pilot it with 30 people and see what they think. Well, that, that's going to be a different conversation.
1: And I think actually what you're bringing up is something that is is seemingly a little bit of, of, of a conundrum. We talked about how more complex it's becoming, more sophisticated, but actually it's easier to set these platforms up than it ever has been. Depending on the platform, depending on who you talk about, all those caveats. But I will tell you that it used to be when you were on prem, primarily on prem services, you actually were loading the software on a server, setting it up, doing all that, far more complex. A lot of the cloud based platforms have made it easier to get up and running, which is good because a lot of the platforms have really been thought, thinking about how we do that in a safe, secure manner, being able to do it. That is that is the part. So there's what you're offsetting is the energy between that. We used to have all this energy trying to just get the it configurations right and get it all that. You still have a smaller window of that, but this one's now saying we have got, you know, the, the the programming set. I mean, it's like me, me and my television. Getting the cable to my house is one thing, getting programming that I want to watch is a whole nother bucket. And that's it, you gotta have both to get the end value out of it. It is. Without the cable, the programming doesn't matter. Without the programming, the cable itself doesn't matter. So the journey is complete when, or not, it really is never complete, but it's, it's
0: never com- or, it's fair
1: complete. Fair enough. Yeah. Isn't there? Is never complete. I know that sounds terrifying to folks, but it's not like, yeah. I think
0: we're it's done. exciting, though, right? It I mean, is. I think, a, I think that's a little bit of a mindset shift that can actually yeah. make this go from overwhelming and like, oh, uh, to exciting is the fact that. Yes, if you're looking at this, what's the thing that we just need to do so we can be done with it and move on? That, yeah, you might look at this and go, well, to do this well, that journey's never over because guess what? Even by the time you're done with some of the stuff, there's probably gonna be new capabilities and new things out there that you go, oh, well now we gotta factor that in. That wasn't even a thing we were thinking about three, four years ago. And now we've gotta figure out how to account for this and things like that.
1: I, absolutely and i think that that's where the new complexities come into because in the, the end game is utilization engagement and even pulling them in in a less transactional manner that we often rely on them being the contributors being the sharers, the evaluators through micro evaluation whatever it is smaller chunks of these but we actually integrate them more than we ever have that's the real game to be able to do that and, and it's just enough that's the other thing is it's just enough this isn't you don't want them spending forever and i want them to spend No more time than they need to get what they need, but no less either. So it is a sweet spot in the middle of really trying to get them a little more open architecture, a little more open access with the right drives and the motivations. They can get what they need for the right moment of learning need and then get back to where they're at. So being able to put it next to them. So
0: What's funny about you saying that, though, talking earlier about your recovering instructional designer piece, that what you just said right there is a fundamental shift that you have to make because historically, and I I grew up in the space too, there's this natural attachment <laughs> that we get to our stuff. We, yeah. we make these programs, we make this content, we we design all this stuff. It becomes very personal for us. And the risk we can run into is going, well, but I wanna make sure that they do it all. They, they yeah. have to see it all. They have to do everything that we dedicated and designed versus saying, Actually, what we care about is that they get what they need out of that and what they need out of it may be a little bit different than somebody else. And we need to be okay with saying, well, if you got, I I think back on MOOCs, back when MOOCs first came out, they got a pretty bad rap because, oh, well, completion rates were only here. Well, yes, because you were looking at completion rates as your success metric. But when they actually went back and then assessed users and said, did you get out of the course? What you needed? Well, that metric was through the roof because that's really what people were going there for. Well, I went into this course. I really only needed this. I got yep. that out of section this, and that's all I needed. And so I went on.
1: Yeah, and that, that's a that's a great point, and I think that that's creating that space for that happen. And I'm not saying that as designers we all abandon all intent no. on our designs. That's no, not what we're absolutely saying. not. But you're creating space that I said, I, I have these key outcomes that I am designing with intentionality. I mean, take it out of the learning context. If I go into a museum, they have assembled the pieces of art on the wall for a reason. There's an intentionality within this room, why these pieces are here. Now, when I'm in that room, there's space for me as an individual and a consumer of the experience to walk out with my own impression, my own rationale for why things were there and what I took from it. I can take what they had in intentionality and I can have that. And that's part of that, being able to open up to that kind of experience to say, what are you trying to get out of this? And that's the beauty of it is when they actually got what they needed in unexpected ways, those are actually the hidden gems of a new designing experience that was that was really, and I'll tell you, I got broken early on as an instructional designer because I had the opportunity to watch a. Uh, we, had the, we, had the, we had the blessing of a, uh, of, a, of, a, of a ten bay usability lab, so yeah. we were designing online MBA courses. We bring in learners, we paid them. It was a dot-com, so you know money wasn't the problem. Spend was actually the strategy. So we brought people in, and they, these are college-level accreditation courses. And we had a camera on the learners, a camera on their, on their um, experience, and then a room where we had usability associates actually watching the experience the entire time. So as an instructional designer, I'm allowed to come and watch what I've just designed. So these are like 40-hour experiences that include facilitator feedback. So these are extended experiences. And, of course, I'm all of a sudden questioning the sample because clearly you did not, my design is impeccable. The users themselves are the wrong solution because my design is solid. What I began to realize is in the debriefs and it was constantly like I could sit in the room while the associate was debriefing, but I couldn't talk because I'm sitting here and they're looking at his face like, So you got to stop with the faces, you got to stop with this and open yourself up to, why did they not? And they were like, well, when I looked at this and all of a sudden I had to open myself up to the fact that I had a design bias. Yep. I am probably every moment I spent designing something, I am naturally building a bias for how I think it should go. Yeah. The usability of it by bringing in the right people helps wring that bias out. And, and nothing's more exhilarating than going, I didn't see that coming. Yep. But let's talk a little bit more about that. So and that's, I, I like a, that. that's
0: a mindset shift. And I think that's the thing that that really, but it's an important point to make. And I think, you know, there's there's a couple things because this happens true with system architecture. It's this comfort with failure. There's going to be times you're going to pick a platform and you're going to go, I think this is going to dramatically change the end user experience. And people are going to throw me a party because it's going to be the best thing ever. And you're going to do it. And people are going to go, I hate it. I remember I was with one organization and we we dramatically transformed. I was excited. I thought it was going to be great. And the response was, give us back the PDFs. And I remember being like, what? Like, what did you just say? We just, we, do you not understand the beauty, the art, the architecture behind this? And then you had to kind of go, well, you know what though? I'm not here for me. I'm here for them. And that doesn't mean you can't push or you can't try and do that. But that comfort was saying, well, okay we're going to try some things we're going to get knocked in the teeth and some things are going to fail and some things are going to work. But again, it doesn't go back to just throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, well, just forget it. Don't worry about it. Because it's about really mastering that skill of how do we architect the entire design? And while we knocked on, we knocked a little bit on learning objectives in the beginning, that is why that outcome focus is so important to say, we need to get the person from point A to point B. Let's design the experience around that, that regardless of who you are, you can make a successful journey. Your pathway through that is going to look dynamically different, but let's not get hung up on making sure that you take the path that I thought you should take and say, did we get you here to here? And did you find value in the architecture that we built?
1: Yeah. And what's getting them within that, now you have a more complexity because you get things like data thresholds. Yes. You get community buildups. And these are all things that, you know, first you got to get open with testing and feedback and the risk of failure. Then you you master the art of failing brilliantly, You're looking really good while failing because you learned and changed and adopted. So that's good. And I mean, a lot of us, you know, and there's a lot of us in many professions that struggle with this, but I think designers... You know, deal with perfection challenges. So that whole failing no. brilliantly is a you know is is something They're we've got that. to do. But yeah, it's it's getting into that. But now it's like thinking about how you run into dimensions of how do I run a test so I can get thresholds of participation, thresholds of community so that they get an authentic experience without actually having to run the whole system. So you do need to get a little smarter about that, but that's where I think you start to look at things coming in and When you're relying on them, that's that's the exhilarating thing because I'm going to tell you, things are changing too fast. Our our competitive environments are too complex for an organization to sit down and figure out the solution and roll out the answer for everybody else. Because by the time they've done that, the question has changed to something else. It's too late. We now need to bring in the workers and the performers and the learners as part of our ecosystem and they become much more powerful in helping us adjust quicker and faster. And the platforms we have, it's not just that I created all the content for you. I created the structure. I used to tell a story about, um, you know, I put up this picture and I would show, does anybody know what this is? And technically it was a man-made reef. So people didn't know what it was. I said, this is my arch- This is my instructional design shift. I no longer focus on creating the reef. I create the conditions for the reef. The idea is to say life will happen. And then the first layer and the second layer and the third layer, you have to pick the right places where it's going to be. But that's the idea is to get this because that's the only way it's going to sustain over time.
0: Yeah. There are
1: things we cannot build that we have to be able to get a much bigger. It's less direct. And it's a little more convoluted to figure out how you do that. But that's moving quickly along that progression to get to those bigger challenges is really where we need to get to.
0: Yeah, yeah, so much, so much good, <laughs> <laughs> so many good points in there that I, I'm looking forward to the transcript of this so that we can kind of highlight some of these because there, there there really is just so many things that I think people can take from this. And where I would continue to push us to think to think, continue to push the needle on this is not just in the innovation that we're doing on on that end user experience side, but also when you look at, and and I mentioned this before, is so often it's easy to get wrapped up in the end user experience. And that is an important component. I I will say that is absolutely an important component. (laughs) But But the other piece is, there's a lot of other, going back to the quick, I'll flash it up real quick. Going back to the other sides of the capability, there's a lot of other things that we can be focusing on to help improve the end user experience. And I think that's one of the things that's important when you're thinking about this ecosystem is, yes, be exploring the end user tools, the content delivery tools, the things like that. That's important, but also if your house isn't in order, and you're not using some of this technology to improve your internal efficiency or your internal operations or the way you design content from the fundamental, you know, that standpoint, you're also missing opportunity to improve the end user experience. And I think that's one of the things where sometimes it can be easy to narrowly focus on, oh, the ecosystem, that's the, that's where the, the front door for the learner. Not quite. It's part of it.
1: Yeah. Well, and, and that gets to your, to the thing you're looking at. It, it's not, it's not just, do I have the right technology in place? It's how we design effectively for it. And yeah. that's, and then you, you've got to have a really good design with the good, you know, technology that with the affordance you're looking for, but you also want to make sure it's secure and it's got a future mindset on how it's able to share data safely without having to port out usernames everywhere else. This, the scalability to actually not only collect data points today, but ones that you're going to have for tomorrow. So it's, it's trying to get that um, architecture in place for growth on both dimensions. And and I that's where you – that's the really exciting part is that we have more – right now, we fundamentally have had the first time in a long time the ability to do what, with designers what we've known we should be doing. The concept of spacing, yes. I mean, we've known the problem about the forgetting curve for I don't know how long. And oh, for wow. how many years did we say a two-day workshop is what I got to do? Because it was based off of efficiency and what we can do. Yep. We now have opportunities to actually go with how we know people learn and do it if we do it well. If we we have the right technology and the right design, we can actually achieve the things that we have been frustrated with historically. So I think the question is, and for those designers out there thinking about this, is like, you're getting to the world of yes. What do I do with the yes when it's constantly been no? You don't have time. You don't have resources. You kind of <laughs> got to go back into this. What do you do with the yes? Having those technologies, and those ecosystems, to be able to take advantage of it, but know how to design for it so that when you get that shot, you're really showing this is this is apples and oranges. You're able to show this is why it's so much better.
0: Yeah. Well, and that's and and you hit on that really important point that is it goes back to I think sometimes we we tend to beat up on the way things have been done and things like that. But in many regards, a lot of the things we've done were, were, were because we had bad intentions or we didn't want to do these things. There were truly physical, financial resource limitations where it was like, well, we would love to do some of this stuff. We just can't because we only have this window of time and, and this appetite for whatever. And now, now we have the long work to your point of saying, well, now we can say yes to some of this stuff. Now this idea of wouldn't it be great if we could? Well, the answer is, mean, yeah. I mean, I love it. And, and we we have, we have an example
1: of like, you know, we, we do, we do some very great programs on the Intrepid platform. And here's the beautiful thing about this is now because you can space, so it's time bound, but it's spaced over time. Here's the mind blowing part is I can run a level three evaluation before I do my level one. I can actually show proof of transfer before I ever ask you whether or not you like it. And I can actually, you know, see with you're because I have it overlapped over the work cycle. So I'm asking you and thinking and you're learning and you're applying and I ask you to bring it back. And as a group with peers and experts, we look at your application and I saw that you did this and yeah. I gave you feedback and I saw how you tried to implement it. I actually can collect through the natural course over time. I can do a level three evaluation
0: on the impact of this stuff yeah. before we even go through it, which is just it was it was things that were not impossible but logistically nearly impossible why,
1: why would I why would I run a level three evaluation on something so I'm gonna go spend you know tens of thousands of dollars to go figure out that my tens of thousand dollar thing worked or didn't work because it was and you get anemic response rates so level three was always really hard to do yes I go now it's actually more naturally it's in the flow of work and learning where we're at it. And as we get even closer to the point of performance with the rise of the the Office 365, we didn't even dig into that, but now you're just blowing I told you you we
0: run out of time.
1: I know. I know. (laughs) I I knew it. I had a suspicion, but yeah, but I, you know, that's, that's the stuff and I'm like, all of a sudden it's like, I'm gonna blow your mind. What if we could do a level three before level one? You can't do that. Oh yeah, you can. I mean, that's the beauty.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, we'll, we'll wrap here, but I think that's one of the encouraging, <laughs> exciting parts about this whole digital ecosystem and all these new technologies and what you can do is, I, I use the word reimagine, which gets kind of thrown around a lot, kind of like ecosystem anymore. But really when you think about it, it's the fact that it's, what would you do if you could do anything? Because the answer to that now is you can. You can, it's just a matter of figuring that out. And it's not, as complicated or as difficult as it once was and i think those opportunities we should be excited about that we should be we should be hungry we should be you know getting really amped up about that not fearing that as well this is dramatically different than than what we've done before this is going to be really uncomfortable yeah it is it is going to be uncomfortable it's going to be a shift you're going to have to change the way you do things but it's much better on the other side
1: well, and I think to your point, it's not going back and saying that everything we've done in the past as designers has been bad or wrong. No. But I will say that the part here is that once you have the availability and you don't step forward, that's the that's the future challenges. When you fall back to old practices under old constraints and those are relieved for the future, that's the thing. Now you have the ability to step in and take advantage to new designs to be able to do things that we haven't been able to do. So I think the past was understood. It yep. had a lot of content. it, is what it was. future, that's where I think our challenge goes. And that's going back to why I push myself as a recovering instructional designer, thinking differently. How do I embrace the yes after so many of no's or qualified no <laughs> or whatever? It's, it's how yeah. can we actually do some of the things we know we should be doing?
0: And f- concluding thoughts, I would say, I'm really glad you brought that up because that's probably the biggest risk we have now is that If we discover that this is what's possible now and we refuse to do it because it's not what's comfortable for us, that's where the real risk lies. Because as digital acumen and the possibilities, as our stakeholders get smarter and smarter about what we can do, you don't want to be in a position where they go, where you go, we can't do that. And they're coming to you going, yes, you can. And I know you can. That's not a position that you want to be in. Or
1: let me show you how I just did it. Let me show you how (laughs) you did
0: that. That's even worse. So, all right. Well, with that, again, big thanks to Intrepid for making this one happen. Thank you, Matt, for setting aside the time. Super fun conversation. Hopefully, everybody got something of tremendous value out of it. And I wish you all the best. Uh, We will be back later this week. So, have a good one. And we will talk to you on the other side, Matt. Thanks.